0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily, the mini eye test of a podcast that ensures we can drive the whole way on Wednesdays. I am Alexandro, and I'm talking to you from my 12th week of lockdown in Mykonos, Greece, where daily yoga has been replaced by arguing with my sourdough starter and promises of writing 2,000 words a day have been adjusted to considering any day on which I wear trousers good day in professional terms. I am excited to welcome today Dr Gemma Tetlow, formerly of the Institute for Fiscal Studies and the Financial Times and currently Chief Economist at the Institute for Government.
1: Hello, pleasure to be here.
0: You recently wrote that government being clear about its objectives coming out of lockdown wasn't just a nice to have but essential both for business trying to plan and in terms of holding government accountable for delivering against that plan. Has there been anything in the last two weeks since that piece that gives you more faith in the plan?
1: I think the thing that I was pointing to when I wrote that was that the, the sort of first effort at an exit strategy that the government laid out, whilst it had some sort of statements about uh, levels of risk and phases of the withdrawal strategy from lockdown, it was very unclear how the decisions about lifting the economic and social restrictions were going to be related to that element of the risks still posed by the virus and what could be done to mitigate those risks and the ability of the NHS to cope with any new cases of the disease. I think it's still very unclear how the government is thinking about these things. Mm. We've had the government this week talking about the fact that next week we may be able to start opening up new forms of business. And obviously we've had a lot of debate about whether or not schools um, will start operating again and which year groups will go back and how they can go back. And it's still to me very unclear how the government is under what the government's understanding is of the spread of the disease and the risks that are posed by different types of social and economic interactions, and sort of how they are willing to trade off those risks with mm. some of the benefits that might come from easing the restrictions for businesses trying to plan um, their strategies for the rest of the year they need to understand at what point can they really expect to be able to get their businesses back up and running again? At what point can they expect customers to come back wanting their goods and services? And without a clear idea of how the government is going to respond to new evidence about the spread of the disease and new abilities to track and trace and keep the disease under control, it's very hard for them to plan what things
0: might Mm. look like. And, and in terms of viability, I imagine, as well, because it's a very different proposition to say to restaurants, you can open, but only with tables outside, for instance, uh, and, and to say you can open normally, as it were. I and mean, that that makes a huge difference to the bottom line, doesn't it?
1: It, it does make a huge difference. And even thinking about opening with tables outside, how widely spaced are those tables going to be? Mm. What information is the government looking at to understand whether we need two meter social distancing as we have in this country or one meter or one and a half meters as some other countries have been thinking about? Sort of thinking about understanding more about how the government Prioritises these risks and benefits would help to understand where government policy is likely to go. Because at the moment, the government is pumping a huge amount of money into keeping the economy going or keeping businesses and households afloat while yeah, yeah. while some of these lockdown measures are in place. The government obviously did that because they thought there was a value to keeping um, those things on ice. But without properly understanding sort of how does the government prioritise these potentially important objectives, um, it's kind of hard to predict how much more money they're willing to pump into keeping all of this on ice and at what point they start to actually think that the costs of doing that outweigh the benefits or that they think that the the risks from the disease um, start to be minimal enough that they can start to prioritise getting the economy up and running, even if there is a small residual risk of of the disease still remaining.
0: So you, um, you, you have identified three phases, basically, to the crisis. The shielding phase, I mean, in terms of government response, the shielding phase, the recovery phase, and the restructuring phase. So am I right to assume that we are effectively now coming out of shielding and just making our way into the recovery phase?
1: That's right. I mean, it's a bit of a crude approximation to kind of distinguish those three phases. But the reason I sort of think about it like that in my mind is that we had the initial phase where given the risks of the disease spreading rapidly through the population and what that would mean for overwhelming the NHS and the high level of deaths that would have resulted, it was almost a no-brainer for the government to impose pretty wide-ranging economic restrictions and alongside that to put in place a really unusual, unprecedented set of government support measures to hugely subsidise wages for businesses that weren't able to pay their workers to offer very generous loans and grants um, to different businesses to kind of keep them going. And that, that phase, in a sense, a lot of the kind of the normal economic orthodoxy about how you design policy just went out the window because actually the government in a really unusual way actually didn't want businesses to operate. They didn't want people to go to work. So they threw a load of money at ensuring that people didn't need to go to work. Businesses didn't need to try and make money, but kind of kept it all on ice. And as we move into the next phase, as the government is trying to get things going again, actually needs to reconsider the set of policies that it has because it, the government well, firstly, obviously doesn't want to be spending taxpayer money unnecessarily, but also doesn't want to have in place policies that might actually actively hinder people getting back to work and businesses getting back up and
0: running. Is it possible that we might get into a situation where if people are hesitant um, because they, they still don't feel safe enough to go back out into a sort of new normal that the government might actually start withdrawing those financial safety nets as a means of encouraging people to go back out to work?
1: That is certainly one possibility. And I think it's quite an important decision facing the government. Is if, so there are several considerations here. Clearly, we are, until there is a, a vaccine widely available, that will mean that people don't suffer from this disease and don't die from it, there is going to be a risk to people going back out into the workplace that they may catch the disease. So there is a question for the government about what risk it thinks that poses and to what extent they can either recommend or mandate changes to working practices that try Mm. and minimise those risks.
0: And and there will be, of course, a social justice angle to this because I guess people who are slightly better off who have uh, some savings um, can stay safer for longer, if that makes sense. But if you remove those financial safety nets, then people who are, uh, you know, on the on the coal face, financially speaking, will have no choice but to go out and possibly um, put themselves at risk.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, I am sitting very safe and comfortable in my home, doing a job that I can very readily do from home. So I don't immediately face the question about, can I get back to work? Mm. And how do I trade off the desire to do that against the risk I might face from going into a workplace where I'd face an increased risk of catching coronavirus? There are obviously many jobs. And as you rightly point out, it actually is disproportionately people in low wage jobs who are facing Um, This choice its a lot of blue-collar jobs, lower-wage jobs, um, which actually have to be done face-to-face with members of the public and are harder to do from home. So there definitely is that social justice angle. So for the government, there's there's a question about the extent to which they recommend changes to the workplace. To what extent do they take on responsibility or do they leave it to employers to bear the kind of liability for saying to workers it is now sufficiently safe for you to go back to work. Mm. And then on top of that, as you say, there will be a question for the government.
0: Very interesting, very interesting legally going forward, of course, to see whether that results in action. Yeah. Um, It It will be very interesting to see whether. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously keen to look forward, but very, very quickly looking back, Um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, is one of the people who seem to be emerging from the shielding phase with quite a lot of credit. Um, how, How would you sort of rate the economic intervention during that first phase? Do you think they got it broadly right?
1: I think it's actually been pretty successful. There were various considerations in that early phase. One of the things was simply unlike normal times one of the big priorities was just to get money out the door to the people who needed it quickly Um, and the set of measures that they adopted actually did that pretty effectively Um, so i think there are various things that worked quite well one was that the new universal well not so new now but the universal credit system, which was set up a few years ago Uh seems to have dealt quite well with a big increase in applications, um, from people newly out of work or on low earnings. So that worked pretty well in sort of avoiding poverty for people who needed to make new claims. The wage subsidy scheme, although it took some time, obviously, for the payments to go out from that, Rishi Sunak was very clear at a very early stage that they were going to give generous support to businesses to subsidise wages, and that, I mean, he used the phrase we will do whatever it takes to protect jobs, yeah. which gave a really clear signal to big businesses early on that actually they didn't, obviously they might have had short-term cash flow issues, but they didn't need to worry too much about their financial viability in the near term because the government was going to step in with a pretty generous wage subsidy scheme.
0: Yeah, there was a sort of don't worry the cheque is in the post um, holding message to start with. So in contrast, um, other aspects of government intervention, health policy, procurement, um, IT project management, comms, are emerging from that first phase. I think it's uncontroversial to say with less credit. Um, why, Why do you think one department has done so noticeably better?
1: They face somewhat different practical challenges. Obviously, the, the the sort of question of how do you get money out the door of the Treasury is different from how do you ramp up the testing regime for um, current coronavirus,
0: yeah. um,
1: or and different from the question of how do you get PPE onto the front line in the health service. I mean, I agree. I think the broad characterisation that actually the Chancellor and the Treasury and the policies that they've been in charge of, which are really unusual, um, were kind of breaking entirely new ground in lots of ways and did require new systems to be put in place, particularly things like the support package for the self-employed, which required HMRC to um, gather information that it didn't really readily have available. Um, All of those things do seem to have been done reasonably effectively um and that they they prioritized the ones that they could do more quickly because they were using existing systems and then some things like the self-employed support and some of the loan schemes for smaller businesses took a little bit longer to get going because um they they required a bit more investment in new um architecture for the other um areas of policy i mean i i think then there will and there needs to be sort of post-mortem an inquiry on what went on in some of these areas Um, I think there are some cases where clearly 10 years of focus on driving greater efficiency um, had sort of put pressure on and driven out some of the resilience and some of the the sort of slack that would have been there um, once upon a time for dealing Mm. with the low probability events that this is So I think there probably will be a rethinking going forwards of what we mean when we think about spending public money effectively and the need for some resilience and contingency within public services, not just looking at the sort of headline measures of efficiency.
0: Moving to recovery, um, what are the, the sort of traditional levers available to government to stimulate an economy that has gone largely into hibernation?
1: So I think there's a sort of question here that we don't yet completely know the answer to about whether once we start lifting restrictions, does the economy and do people sort of automatically go out and start spending and all the kind of the unspent money that's been stored up as people have been locked down, do they go out and use every opportunity they have to spend that? If that's the reaction, then government may not need to do very much at all um, because you release the restrictions and people start making use of them um, and demand for businesses kind of comes back to the extent Mm. that it can. The other possibility, and it kind of looks, if we look at countries like China that obviously locked down earlier and opened back up earlier, if actually we come out of this with a degree of caution on the part of households, either because they still fear the risk of infection and so don't want to go out and interact with the economy in the way they once did, or perhaps they're still nervous for their financial future. if we So if we come out of it with people sort of holding back on spending their money and not quickly going back to what they used to do, then there may be more of a role for government in needing to try and stimulate um, the economy to get going again. Um, In which case, Mm. if we're in that world, then you might think of the sort of more um, traditional fiscal stimulus sorts of policies. Um, So if the the problem was generally people are just not really willing to spend their money, even though they have it, um, you could think about policies like a a temporary VAT cut, which – incentivizes people to spend money now rather than waiting um, for a few years time that was the sort of thing that the government did after the financial crisis Um, or you could think about something Mm. much more targeted if if um, if demand is deficient in particular areas, you could think about incentive schemes, sort of car scrappage schemes or incentives to get people to invest in home insulation or something. If you, if you want, had a sort of dual objective of both spending money and wanting to promote uh, energy efficiency. Um, so if there are sort of particular areas of the economy that you're worried about deficient demand, you could think of a more targeted fiscal stimulus policy. Um, similarly, a VAT cut, obviously, it works for everybody. If you are more worried about demand being deficient among particular groups in the population, um, you might want to target um, your stimulus to particular groups. So you could do an increase in benefit payments, for example, if you think actually um, you'd get bigger bang for your buck by targeting extra money at low-income households rather Mm. than um, giving a boost to everybody.
0: it's, It's interesting, the Greek government, because I'm stranded in Greece at the moment, and the greek government are doing exactly that so in order to stimulate um tourism internally i mean in greece um they've i think they've cut down to zero all vat on um uh, boat tickets and plane tickets and uh, things like that and they've cut to i think a very low 5% uh, all vat on um food and drink um uh, you know when you go out um so so that's that's what they seem to be doing is there is there then a danger that um people might well effectively learn to take more enjoyment and less consumption and we we have a a sort of initial snapback to a to a higher level of ec- economic activity but not fully, and those last few percentage points become a very hard slog.
1: That is possible. Um, I mean, I think, I know from my own personal experience, that spending a lot of time unable to do things that I used to do in the past has made me think about, actually, what do I get enjoyment out of life? And that isn't necessarily always going out to restaurants or um, spending money. If that is the case, I guess you then come to the question of what is the government trying to achieve and if so we tend to sort of focus in government policy and in economics generally on the things that you can measure and the things that are captured by the market economy um mm. but if actually people people's well-being is improved by having a bit more time at home and they would rather do that than uh, go out to. Restaurants, for example, that may mean that GDP is lower, but people may be as well, as well off in terms of their kind of utility and welfare Mm. as they were before. The offset to that would obviously need to be that monetary incomes are somewhat lower. So I guess it it depends how you sort of think about that as success or failure for the country and for government policy. Um, If people are equally as happy, but they have slightly lower incomes, but more enjoyment of spending time at home maybe that's an okay place to be but it does mean that we will have either less money available for public services and um the welfare state yeah. system um or we need to tax more of our market income um to pay for the kind of services and welfare state that we had before
0: how might uh... a a Brexit, especially a disorderly Brexit, interact with that, you know, trying to push back up the curve of economic economic activity. I mean, it it seems to me that adding a sort of a a structural issue to a market shock might, might actually have a disproportionate effect um, what do you think?
1: The government's obviously so far being clear that they are not going to ask for an extension despite the disruption that has been caused by coronavirus to the talks and to the economy and the government. Yeah. Um, I think there are two big risks from going ahead with um, ending the transition period at the end of the year. One is on the government side that, Simply the time and effort that has been needed to deal with coronavirus and all the sorts of policies that we've been talking about has meant the government hasn't had the time to negotiate with the EU in the way that was expected or to put in place the very many systems and new policies and adjustments that need to be made before the end of the transition period. And there are lots of decisions still hanging in the air um, Mm. that need to be made between now and the end of the year. So, there's a problem for the government of are they actually going to be as ready prepared as they thought they would have been able to be? I mean, do um, they have the personnel
0: even?
1: Exactly. Uh, People have clearly been reallocated away from some jobs, including preparing for Brexit, onto dealing with coronavirus in different departments. There's a similar question for businesses that... Implementing Brexit, whatever that looks like, particularly a a form of Brexit at the end of this year that involves major changes to the trading relationships with the EU, will be disruptive for business. They will need to put time and effort into preparing for that and doing that alongside all of the disruption that's also been caused to their businesses from coronavirus will be particularly difficult. Um, And it may just be too big an ask for some businesses to expect them to prepare for all of that at the same time.
0: Yeah, so it might be the thing that tips them over, as it were.
1: It might be, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, some of the challenges are probably similar. Coronavirus has raised some questions about supply chains and the need to source things closer to home in the event that something like a global pandemic disrupts your supply chains. Um, That raises similar types of questions to disrupting trade flows um, through Brexit. But the uncertainties about where the end state might be are different with both of those things, and businesses kind of face now two sets Mm. of uncertainties about where they're going to be able to buy things from and at what price.
0: Inevitably, at some point, the conversation will turn from anything it takes to who pays for all this. Um, is Is another round of austerity versus stimulus debate Inevitable. I mean, can the country take actually another big round of austerity? Is there or, or having trimmed so much fat in the last 10 years and made such efficiency savings? Will it be an impossible ask to say to, to the same departments, to the same businesses, to the same everyone now tighten your belt a little bit more? You know, it's like like asking a, a marathon runner to to go on a fast.
1: Yeah, so I think it's worth, I sort of think about this as three bits to this question. The first is, are we talking here about um, a purely temporary, is coronavirus a purely temporary shock to the UK economy and public finances? If that is the case, so if we expect the economy to rebound eventually, even if that takes some time and we get back to the sort of growth path that we were on before, then we're really just talking about a short term increase in government borrowing, but not a permanent increase in annual government borrowing. So the government will have borrowed a huge amount to tide the economy over through coronavirus that will push up the level of debt. But it won't necessarily mean that we're on a path of unsustainable debt. Yeah. So in that world, um, you face a question about, um, are you happy with our newly elevated level of debt? Um, or do you want to try and pay that back down gradually over time? If you want to try and pay it back down gradually, then you will need to do something um, to either raise extra revenues or cut spending. Um, but it, you could do that quite gradually, um, even though you've seen a big one-off increase in debt in the short term. If we're in a slightly more worrying world and coronavirus causes a structural Deterioration in the UK economy, which is much more like what happened after the financial crisis. The financial crisis was not not problematic because it was a big recession. It was problematic because it actually revealed that the UK economy could not produce anywhere near as much as we thought it had been able to before the crisis. And that meant the government had to do a total reassessment of its tax and spending plans. It couldn't it couldn't spend as much as it had hoped to without raising taxes. And that's what led to that decade of austerity that actually the government chose to do a little bit in the way of tax rises, but mainly it chose to sort of um, get itself back in into the black by um, cutting the amount of annual spending that it was doing. And that was why we had that decade of austerity. Mm. So there's the kind of question about how much... How much are we needing to trim from our annual budgets going forward? Um, it could be pretty modest or it could be a huge amount. I don't think we know the answer to that question yet. And in a sense, um, the part of the reason the government is spending quite so much money at the moment to try and prop up the economy is because it hopes that by doing so, the answer to that question is that actually this is a temporary shock and the economy can recover pretty well afterwards, yeah. rather than sort of hopes that that none of that temporary shock becomes a permanent damage. If we do need to um, sort of find a way of cutting annual borrowing, even after the coronavirus shock has sort of passed through, there's the question about how do you pay for that um, as you said, the, the answer after the financial crisis was very much to try and cut borrow, um, cut spending rather. Yeah. And that was done largely through cutting uh, benefits to working age people and cutting spending on public services in lots of areas. Not much was done on the tax side and not much was done, in fact, uh, Pensioners actually had their benefits increased in the UK Mm -hmm. after the financial crisis. So I think you are right to raise the question about could the government go back again to the same areas that it has cut for the past decade? And I think that would be really pretty hard. Um, Some areas of government have been cut very, very severely. Um, Budgets for local authorities are one area that's been cut back very sharply the our justice system so spending on the um police and particularly the prison service was cut back very sharply during the post-financial crisis decade of austerity and it's pretty it's been pretty clear in recent years that cracks have been starting to appear in those services and the government has started putting extra money back into those things because it seems to be politically infeasible to actually find more savings in those areas um it, it seems unlikely we're going to find more savings in health spending or social care spending, which are other big areas of government budget. Um, So I think it it seems inevitable the question would have to be, can you raise taxes, it seems, or cut spending on pensioners, which are the two things that took much less of the strain um, post-financial
0: crisis. I'm going to wrap up by asking you an absolutely ridiculous final question. Um, uh, Should we be trying to restore the economy we had? Or is this a good opportunity to, to reimagine things, to reassess, you know, the usefulness of, of, of GDP as the only measure of economic health, uh, our reliance on cost, constant growth, the, the lack of resilience in our, in our industry? Do we basically, is this reset giving us an opportunity that it would be a shame to waste to reimagine? Um, what country we are in 10 years' time.
1: So I think those are questions that are worth asking um, for all of us. I think there is a question, there's a separate question about what the role of government is in that. And I think we shouldn't kind of forget the lessons of history, which are that governments are often not very good at sort of predicting where the world is going to go and picking winning businesses to support um so i don't think we should go we probably need to be conscious of allowing the, the sort of people and economies to reveal what are the things that people really value and want to spend their time and money on um rather than the government trying to preempt that in um too precise a way um if coronavirus has taught us anything it's that the world can do unexpected things um and we need to be kind of prepared for a variety of different futures.
0: Um, I, think what, <laughs> I like that. I think that's very <laughs> elegant, to be prepared for a variety of futures. <laughs>
1: um, perhaps to come back to where we um, started on this, I think one thing that the really big decisions that have had to be made both by people and by the government around coronavirus has brought to the fore is the sort of trade-offs between the different priorities that we might have, the extent to which we value our health over our economic well-being, the extent to which we value being able to see our friends and family over having a wide range of economic opportunities and the ability to travel abroad. Mm -hmm. All those kind of things have taken on a kind of salience and people have had to think about how they weigh those things up in a way that we don't normally. Um, And I think actually that's... in. so far, that's one of the areas where the government hasn't totally been clear about how it is prioritising those things and how it is interpreting what it thinks the voting public's priorities are between these things. I think actually, if we can come out of this with anything, it would be a greater understanding of the extent to which people would prefer to have more take home pay or actually whether they would more value um safe living environment or safe working environment or time
0: yeah Mm, mm. fascinating Gemma. I, i won't pretend i'm much less confused than at the start of our conversation but 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 i can say that my confusion is a lot better informed if that makes sense um thank you on behalf of our listeners for joining me today Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday mornings, with a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Wednesday morning. So don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to support us, search Patreon Bunker. We will also be announcing registration details for our next live Remaniacs versus Bunker Zoom event very soon, with first, as always, going to Patreon supporters. So look out for that. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay home or drive hundreds of miles to another home of your choice, whatever the guidance is when this goes out. But definitely stay alert, especially to bullshit. This is Alexandro from The Bunker saying over and out. the bunker daily was presented by Alexandre, andre it was produced by andrew harrison the assistant producer to jacob archbold On audio production was by me alex reese the theme tune by kenny dickinson the bunker daily is a podcast of production